We'll be out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I thought I was going to get through 1 through 22, but sometimes you bite off more than you could chew uh, and swallow. So we're going to stop at 17, 1 through 17. We'll continue on with 18 next week. But uh, last week, now, Paul taught us about relationships. You know, I was continuing on with our Church Matters series, Relationships. Last week, we t- Paul talked about Christian relationships with non-believers as we look to evangelize, similar to what Armand talked about. He's a Christian teammate. He has non-Christian teammates looking to evangelize him. That's the race that he's in right now. What is the race that you're in? And Paul finished up with the potential of being disqualified from the work of ministry. Even Paul himself says, I could be disqualified, talking about Paul in in 1 Corinthians 9.27. So today, Paul transitions still in relationships, not with non-believers today now. Today's relationship topic is this, God's relationship with us. (laughs) This is a heavy topic now. This is a heavy part of scripture. I thought uh, uh, chapter 9 was escalated, but verse, chapter 10 took it to another holy, even fearful level for me as I sat under, this, uh, under the word all week long. Okay, And so Paul uses Israel, the nation of Israel, to illustrate his point. And right now, Sister Hilda, thank you for reading Exodus 14. I love it. This had a natural passion about you reading the scriptures. And in essence, uh, uh, Hilda read to us what God did for the nation of Israel. Israel was a, was a nation of slaves for 430 years, 430 years in Egypt. And God himself saved the nation, delivered the nation out of Egypt, out of slavery, with a series of miracles and plagues. And even parted the Red Sea with his own hands. And now Israel would wander in the wilderness for 40 long years before they got into the promised land. So this sets up good context. So Hilda, thank you, sister, for setting up the context of what we're going to read. So let's rise. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 17. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, by your spirit, allow me to preach the word faithfully. And I pray your spirit will implant your word deep in our hearts so that we have a greater knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, so we will treasure him more and love him more and become more like him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Thank you, everybody. Paul loves the Corinthian church. This was a hard word that he gives to the Corinthian church. This is a stern warning that he gives to the Corinthian church. Normal people don't want to talk like this to their friends because it's going to be costly. All right? And 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 17, this sermon I have titled, Playing with Fire. Playing with Fire. As an introduction, I just want to draw our minds and recollections to 2020 a little bit. Not only did COVID-19 hit the whole world, but didn't Southern California and the West Coast get hit with incredible fires? I mean, literally, we could see the San Gabriel Mountains and see fire. I mean, one Sunday, a couple Sundays, it was so ashy that our cars were littered with ash. It was unhealthy to jog, but some of us still did. And um, this is what it was. And I want to read this article from 2007. According to New York Times, Los Angeles, October 31st, a, a 10-year-old boy admitted that he accidentally started one of the largest of last week's Southern California fire, wildfires while playing with matches. Enforce, law enforcement officials say, the blaze, the buckweed fire, started in the early afternoon of October 21st in Agodose. That's off the 5 and the 14. A rural community in the northern part of Los Angeles County. Fanned by high winds and hot, dry weather, it spread quickly, driving 15,000 people from their homes, destroying 21 houses and 22 other buildings, injuring three people, and blackening more than 38,000 acres. Playing with fire. According to the National Fire Protection Association, between 2007 and 2011, there were 49,300 fires started with those playing with fire. 49,300. Doing the math, this National Fire Protection Association averaged annually that there were 80 deaths. 80 people died because of these fires caused by those who are playing with fire. 860 injuries per year. And $235 million worth of damages. That's severe. And most of them were started homes. And get this, parents. If you got boys, 83% of them were started by boys, okay? <laughs> boys do not play with fire, Okay. And fire, we know this has, there's many benefits. It keeps us warm around a nice fire pit. We could cook marshmallows with it. We could cook our food. You could use it to build things. Fire is very valuable. But as we could see, fire could destroy, kill, and injure. 
Therefore, we must not play with fire. We must respect fire. Hebrews 12. I'm going to read Hebrews 12, uh, 28 to 29. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says this. Therefore, since we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. We serve God with reverence and awe because we gave, received a, a kingdom of grace and love and of eternity. For God, for our God is a consuming fire. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. And the Bible says right here that since God is a consuming fire and we receive so much grace and mercy from, the, from our God, we should serve him with reverence and awe. In other words, we should fear the Lord. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. Solomon, towards the end of his life, said that in the end, fearing God and obeying his command is all that matters. Fear the Lord. What does that mean to fear the Lord? Right? I thought God was just a God of love and grace and mercy. He is. But the Bible clearly says, fear the Lord. This means that we have the highest of regards. We, show, uh, we have a level of appreciation in our hearts for God, for who he is and what he's done. In essence, we're in awe of him. You are awesome. The issue, as Pastor Kenny gave us a preview, is that we respect this is the issue. We respect God. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says that we could be disqualified. Just as a reminder, what is Paul talking about? The Corinthians were in danger of being disqualified. Not of their salvation, but they're being in at danger of being DQ'd or disqualified from the opportunity to evangelize for the opportunity to receive rewards and, and prizes from the Lord, to be useful to the Lord. And some were experiencing death. God was getting these Corinthians out of the church because they were getting in the way. They were playing with fire. They were playing with God. They were not respecting God. So today's topic, we're going to learn what does it mean to fear God because don't you want to have a, a happy relationship with the Lord? Amen? That's at the end of the day. What else matters? Okay? God loves us. Those of us who are in Christ, God loves us. But just like any parent could know, we love our children, but sometimes we're not happy with our children. Amen? That's the reality. So we're going to answer this question. What does it look like to fear the Lord? Constantly, I'm going to ask that, and we're going to answer it point by point. So the first point to what does it look like to fear the Lord, point number one, we respect, fill in the blank, the blessings of divine grace. We respect the blessings of divine grace. Chapter, verse one says four. It starts off with four. We can't even get past the first word. That word is critical because it links chapter nine to chapter 10. Chapter 9, 27 says this, that we could be disqualified. In verse 10, uh, chapter 10 of verse 1, four, right? He goes, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the seas. Our fathers talking about the Israelite nation. Yes, there are Jewish people in the Corinthian church, but even the Gentiles had Israeli roots. This is why, because through the Israelites, we receive the prophets. Through the Israelites, we receive the apostles. Through the Israelites, we see the Old Testament and the New Testament. And most importantly, through the Israelites, we receive Christ. So our lineage, Paul is taking us back to our roots. 
with the Israelites. And we understand, as Hilda read, that the Israelites spent 430 years and were delivered out of, uh, out of Egypt and spent 40 years in the wilderness. And it says that they were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. What does that mean? This, this means this. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that God personally, personally showed up and cared for the Israelites in the wilderness as he led them during the day as a cloud and as a pillar or a column of fire by night. And even with his own personal hands, metaphorically parted the Red Sea to give the Israelites an escape out of the hands of Egypt. This is personal love and care, TLC, from God himself. And he also reminds them of this other blessing, not only that God have personal uh, interest in the Israelites, he also divinely appointed a leader like Moses. God handpicked Moses, pulled him out of the palace, put him in a field for 40 years to, be, to humble him and prepared him to be the Israelite leaders. He handpicked the leaders. And this is in verse 2, they, they were baptized into Moses. What that means is this, that they identified with Moses as their leader. And they're under, they came under godly leadership. Now, that God give them divine appointment of leadership, he also gave them divine provisions. Verses 3 and 4 says this, he gave them spiritual food and spiritual drink. This is talking about manna, talking about supernatural food that showed up for the Israelites to literally eat in the morning with manna, and in the evening, quail came down. Birds had protein to eat at night. And not only that, the desert is, is dry, and people need drink. God provided them water out of rock supernaturally. And look, at this is the crescendo. Verse 4 at the end says, the rock, was, the rock was Christ. Paul is literally saying, the pre-incarnate Christ, God himself, the second member of the Trinity, the Lord who we, who we call Lord and Savior, was amongst their midst and personally was present amongst the Israelites back then. I mean, this is incredible, incredible blessings. And Paul was reminding the Corinthians how blessed that the Israelites were. And the point was this, that the Israelite nation were God's chosen people. This is my group, and you're nobody, and I chose you because I love you, and you're a holy nation, and I've chosen you for a specific purpose, to let the entire world know about the one true living God. Yahweh himself. In similar fashion, the Corinthians were incredibly blessed. I mean, they had Paul as their pastor. Are you kidding me? They had Apollos come in and fill in. And, and the, the Bible says that he was an amazing preacher. He might even be been a more gifted preacher than Paul himself. In Acts 18, the, the word says that I have many here. God personally handpicked many Corinthians to become Christians. I think of the United States of America as well. For hundreds of years, we've had the greatest teaching. For hundreds of years, we had an incredible heritage, Christian heritage. I mean, you could go online right now and listen to the greatest preachers. It's just at our fingertips. You can go to amazing conferences if we want to, even virtually now these days. 
We could walk around freely and talk about Christ. This is not like Kazakhstan where we have to be careful talking about Christ. We could freely talk about Christ. So much blessing. So much spiritual blessing. Not only that, God has sustained our nation with things, resources. And I think back to what Pastor Kenny shared right now. How even during 2020, how God provided for the needs of our church. How blessed have we been as a nation, but even as a church family here at Evergreen SGV. The Bible says, much is given, much is required. And blessings are like fire. Like I talked about earlier, fire can bless, but fire could burn. When we receive blessings, two effects I've seen happen in people. It could encourage you and get you even more motivated. Or it could make you prideful and very passive. One of the great tasks of coaching was this in the National Football League. Armand, they play for free, for the love of the game. All right? In the National Football League, when people got paid, I'm talking, they got their big contracts. We used to be told, watch them now. Watch them. Do they change? Are they still taking the process seriously? When they say be at workouts at 3.30, are they there at 3.30 or 3.35 or 3.40? When they say to be in the training room at a certain time, are they there? When the coach has to get your hand behind the line, are they nonchalant or are they still intent? Things change. Blessings are a double-edged sword. It's just like fire. It could bless you, but it could be a curse too. So we need to understand, with all this blessing that the Israelites received, how did they respond? Well, this goes to point number two. What does it look like to fear the Lord? Point number two, we respect The dangers, fill in the blank, the dangers of divine grace. Verse 5 says, nevertheless, despite all the blessing, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. God was not pleased. In essence, what that means is this. Most of them died in the desert. Most of them did not enter the promised land. Numbers 14, 28 through 33 says this. Only Joshua and Caleb were over 20 years made it into the promised land. Just Joshua and Caleb, the people who were 20 years and older, all of them died. You're 19 and younger who entered the promised land. A whole generation was killed off. An entire generation was disqualified from being missionaries into the promised land. Gone. And as if you track the Israelites, you could see the route that they took through the Middle East before they got into into Israel, to the promised land, with a bunch of dead bodies and dead bones littering littering the uh, desert floor. I mean, a study done in one of my commentaries by... Kiston Marker Hendrickson, according to Numbers 146, is that there were 603,550 Israelite men. And there are women there, of course, so if you multiply that by two, there are approximately 1.2 million people who are over the age of 40. 1.2 million people died over the course of those 40 years in the wilderness. 
They did a little math. They said, on average, 90 deaths per day. That would equate to 90 deaths per day. And Moses was involved with a lot of funerals throughout that time. 1.2 million dead bodies, corpses were laying in the desert, disqualified from service to the Lord. And Paul is using Israel as an example. How were these Israelites disqualified? Let's look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat up, sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. This is talking about Exodus 32. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and meets with the Lord for 40 days and God gives him the tablets and when he comes back down, what does he find the Israelites doing? Do you guys remember? Kids, what did they do? That's right. They're worshiping the golden calf, right? And now when they're worshiping the golden calf, when it says they're acting immorally, that's exactly what was happening. They were saying we're worshiping God. But immorality was taking place in the camp. And how did 23,000 people fall in that day? Well, obviously God wasn't pleased with this. Moses instructed the Levites to, get, to gird up themselves with their swords and start killing, start killing, and start killing. They killed 3,000 people that day. And after that, God sent a plague that killed 20,000 more. 23,000 people were disqualified that day. Let's keep moving here. Verse 9, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. No, verse 9 talks about how the Israelites rebelled against God in Numbers 21. They're questioning God's goodness. Why did you bring us out here? They're complaining about the food. Right? They're complaining about the food. So God sent supernatural, fiery snakes, serpents to bite them poisonously. And thousands of Israelites died. And more would have died unless the Lord graciously allowed Moses to make a bronze serpent. When they looked at it, they were healed. But thousands of bodies were squirming on the ground as venom was just overtaking their bodies. Thousands more were disqualified in the desert. And finally, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You got plagues, you got fire serpents, now you got the destroyer. Who is the destroyer? How did he enter into the scene? Number 16 talks about this. Korah, a prominent man, and 250 other prominent men from the nation of Israel opposed Moses and Aaron and said, why are you leading us? You have too much power, Moses. We're coming against you. And the Lord sent the destroyer. The destroyer is the death angel. The rabbis called him Mashit. Mashit came down and slaughtered the Israelites. And who is Mashit? He shows up in other places. Exodus 12, 23. He's the same angel death that passed over uh, those with uh, blood on the lentil and the doorposts. He's the one that killed all the firstborn males. Mashit is the one in 2 Samuel 24 when David took the ungodly census and he killed 70,000 Israelites with a plague. Mashit is also the one in 2 Chronicles 32 when King Hezekiah was surrounded by the Assyrian army 
And overnight, Mashid killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Mashid is a, is a death angel. And Mashid took out thousands more of Israelites in the wilderness. Thousands more were laid disqualified from entering to the promised land to be witness for the one and true living God. A lot of parallels with the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were blessed, they were prideful, and they were entitled. And you know what they were involved in? Idolatry. The temple Aphrodite was the prominent uh, fixture in the area. And guess what accompanied being a worshiper of Aphrodite? Temple prostitutes. And let me remind you in, in chapter 5 and chapter 6 how Paul addresses immorality through incest, immorality through homosexuality, immorality through extramarital sex. I mean, those are the things that Paul was addressing. The, 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 the Corinthians struggled with these things, and they're floating in two worlds. Am I a Christian? Or am I, and I, I am, but I got one foot left stuck in the old world still. They even opposed Paul like the Israelites opposed Moses. So Paul uses these specific examples from Israel's history to point out to the, to the Corinthians, don't play with fire. Don't mess with God this way, uh, Corinthians. And the Bible even says that some of the Corinthians were even falling asleep or dying. Don't play with fire, Evergreen SGV. Don't play with fire. Verse 9 says, nor let us try the Lord. Or try Christ. The Lord in the original language is Christos, which means Christ. Do not try. Do not test Christ. This word test means like in hostile sense. Like I dare you. Right? Don't cross over that line. Okay, I'm going to cross over that line. I dare you. So the Corinthians were being warned. Do not put Christ to the test. Quit flirting with the temple prostitutes. Quit flirting with the, the going to hang out at the idol temples. Quit hanging out. The question that we may have asked before when we were younger in the faith is this, how far can I go and still be a Christian? That's the wrong question, brothers and sisters. sisters. That's testing the Lord. That is the wrong question to ask. Can I keep going to the clubs? Can I still keep visiting and flirting with these internet sites? Can I keep listening to this type of music still? Can I just watch Netflix shows that are completely inappropriate and it's okay because it's on television I pay for it? Is it okay to compromise my values on social media to be more accepted? Can I still have these inappropriate relationships in my life? You're playing with fire. You don't want to ask that question. You don't want to think these things, brothers and sisters. You don't want to play with fire. Because I think what fuels some of this mentality is this, a doctrine of demon. What is that? Uh, which doctrine of demon is that? Well, some people think that in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath, God of anger, right? And in the New Testament, Testament that God is the God of mercy and grace and love. Well, Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul clearly here is drawing the Old Testament into the New Testament. God never changes. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is love. But he's also holy. And for the sake of his name, he will be faithful. 
These are the questions that would abuse grace, trample grace underfoot. And today as we take communion, we're trampling foot underfoot the sacrifice of Christ. If we have this attitude as if, oh, God God understands, right? God will forgive me. He understands how hard it is. He understands the times. He'll understand. He's forgiven me. That's called hyper grace. That's called abusing God's grace. That's called disrespecting God. Let's move on to our third point here. What does it look like to fear the Lord? Point number three. We respect the fill-in-the-blank warnings of divine grace. Verse 11 is a, clearly talks about why Paul wrote this. Now these things happen to them as an example. The things that happened to the Israelites as an example for you and me. And they were written for our instruction. This word instruction means more than just like head knowledge. I'm just, I want you to understand X, Y, and Z. No, this is talking about instructing to warn. Like watch how you're getting too close to the edge. This is a warning. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What this is talking about, all of history has been moving to this point. To the church age. Israel's history in the Old Testament is moving towards the church age, the age that we live in. The age where Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ returned back to heaven. Because at any moment, Christ could return. We are living in the end, brothers and sisters. This is the ages of the end here. And all of history has been building up to this point. And we have the privilege of living in this day where we could actually anticipate him coming back. Warnings. Um, I, I've had this thought growing up, and particularly in my younger 20s, I would say. I had this thought, if you want to see the future, look into the past. If you want to see the future, look into the past. I've been so blessed with so many great people in my life and uh, so many great mentors and great coaches. And, and, and these men were like a generation, generation ahead of me. They're older men. They had incredible careers, careers that I dreamt about having. But they lovingly talked to me about, hey, Rocky, make sure you take care of your family. Make sure you don't miss the time with your children when they're young. I'm trying to make up time with my grandkids now. And I thought to myself, that's pretty good right there. But meanwhile, my young, ambitious mind, I, I got to make this career go, right? So I'm driven. But these men lovingly talked to me about these things. In, in, in a sense, this is how the church works. Younger brothers look to your older brothers. Younger sisters look to your older sisters. We learn from one another. And so as I learned these things, I see a lot of parallels here. Paul was drawing them back to Israel. Hey, Corinthian church, look to Israel. Look what happened to them. Warned. I think about our nation. We came out of England. Look at what happened, what's happened spiritually in England. I've talked to my friends and they said that a lot of the church buildings are nightclubs and, and, and hotels and restaurants now. England, they're a little bit ahead of us, about half a century ahead of us. How about families? Do you like what you see in your parents? And God bless our parents, they did their best. Do you like what you see, good or or negative? How about your careers, your predecessors, your mentors? Do you like where they're at? 
Just take a look into the futures. Is that what I want by looking into the past? These are the warnings that Paul's given us in essence right here through the use of Israel, through their heritage in connection to Israel. And right here, verse 12, here's another one. Therefore, since you've been warned, therefore you have the most vivid examples of what happens to bodies who have been disqualified. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Humility, this is the issue here. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride comes before the fall. I was talking to my good friend this week, Gus Bradley, one of the great men that I've met and had a chance to coach with. And we're just laughing about some of the stories. I mean, he's one of the greatest illustrators that I've ever been around. I mean, he's phenomenal. But one illustration that he always gave to the team, he asked the team, what are the three most dangerous words in the NFL? What are the three most dangerous words in the NFL? What would you think they may be, brothers and sisters, to think? What are the three most dangerous words in the National Football League? I got it. I got it. He goes, don't ever get to that place where I say, I got it. I know what to do. I got it. You know what? Game time. I don't need to practice hard. I got it. I'll be there. You know what? That team, we got it. You can always learn more. You can always compete. You always got to keep it on the edge to keep it growing. As soon as you say you got it, you're getting ready to lose. As soon as you say I got it, you're getting ready to get cut from the team. That was his point. I got it. So as Christians, we never want to say I got it. I've been a Christian and part of this church for so, so forth and so long, and I got it. That may be the other guy. That may be the other gal. I'll never do that. That'll never be me. That's some other crazy celebrity pastor. That'll never be me. I come from a good family. That'll never be me. I got it. Pride comes before the fall, the Bible says. And here's another humbling thing. Look at verse 13 at the beginning. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Do you see what Paul's saying there? There's no super temptation out there. These are just everyday, routine things of life. How you deal with your children, how you deal with your spouse, how you deal with your coworkers, how you deal with traffic every day, how you deal with things that pop up on the internet. Everyday, normal things of life. I want to turn to Numbers here. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 20. This is very important that we see this here. Numbers 20, chapter 20, verse 8. I'm going to give you a little context as you're turning there. The Israelites were incessant in their complaining to Moses and to God in effect. Constantly, the food, the water, the water's bitter. We need sweeter water. We're tired of eating the manna and the quail. It's hot. Why did you come to uh, deliver us to die out here? This was everyday stuff for Moses. Very routine. Every single day. And this one day, which started off as a normal day, ended up a defining day for Moses. Let me read verse 8 here. God instructs Moses, it says, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. 
that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. They're complaining about, we need more water. Moses, what kind of leader are you? Every time Moses handled it pretty faithfully. Normal, routine. This is not one of these kind of unnatural things. This is very normal. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. Good. Check. Faithful. And Moses and Aaron gathered an assembly before the rock. Check. Good. Obeying God. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. And look what he says. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Shall we? Not God. We. Moses touched the glory. He started thinking it was about himself. Shall we? Then Moses lifted up his hand. He didn't speak to the rock. He struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts beasts drank. I came through again, Israelites. How dare you question me? Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, he disrespected God. And therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses, you have been disqualified. You do not get to enter into the promised land and to evangelize the promised land. You have been disqualified. Brothers and sisters, you could get to the one-yard line and not win the game. We know this. You could get to the edge of finishing and not finish. I know this feeling. Just an absolute routine day became a defining moment for Moses, and he was disqualified, DQ'd. His body is in the wilderness as well. That's humbling for me to read that. Any of us were like the fraction of Moses's sanctification. Fraction. Fraction. So I asked myself, man, if Moses was disqualified, then who can make it, right? That's humbling. This is not just some person that we don't know about. Well, let's get to the fourth and final point. We respect the guarantor of divine grace. Verse 13 says, but God is faithful. I don't know if you could tell. I got a little bit more excited right there. But God is faithful. We're not faithful. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God guarantees our eternity. God is the one that will continue to keep his word because of his love for us, but more importantly, for the sake of his name, the Bible says. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says that the Lord is faithful. He will give us the strength and protection from the evil one. He'll give us spiritual resources, spiritual protection to handle the trials. Let's read verse 13 here. How is God faithful? Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able? He will test you as much as you can handle. This word temptation right here, Pastor Kenny and I were talking about it this week. Perazo, that's the orig- in the original language. Perazo, perazo could be translated temptation, test, or trial. Right here, Paul's, uh, I mean, the translators have translated this to temptation. 
This has a double meaning here. So as we read this temptation here, you could actually insert the word test or trial in there. It is a temptation depending on how you and I handle it. If we fall into sin, it was a temptation. If we pass, it was a test. It depends on our response, brothers and sisters. And as we read, because of God's fidelity to us, he says this in verse 13 as well. But with the temptation or test, we'll provide the way of escape. Every single time there's a way to escape and to pass the test and not make it a temptation and fall into sin. You see that, brothers and sisters? It doesn't have to be a temptation. You got to look at these things as an opportunity to grow in our sanctification. Because think about it. Every time you pass a test, even in school, right? Or even playing some kind of opponent. There's six teams in Almaty now. Every time you play them and you beat them, you get, you know what? We can handle those guys. And you know it. Every time you pass a test, God builds our confidence that he is carrying us. And we don't have to succumb to the temptation and to keep it as a test. It's an opportunity to grow in our faith. As James 1 talks about, count it all joy for these trials. These trials, perasmo, the same word. These trials are made to perfect our faith, the Bible says, at our James chapter 1. Now, God is faithful And I believe Paul is giving a very stern warning to the Corinthians. I mean, it's obvious when you read this. When you talk about dead bodies, it's very serious. Disqualification, it's very serious. But read verse 14 with me carefully here, guys. Draw your eyes to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, Paul just transitions from hard coaching. You know what he does right there? My beloved, Agapitos, Agape, the one I love, my lover. He puts his arm around the Corinthian church and says, look, it's going to be fine. You haven't been disqualified yet. It's going to be fine. Flee from idolatry. Isn't that awesome? You see both sides of the coin of who Paul was as a pastor. But more importantly, I believe you see both sides of the coin of who God is. God is fierce. God hates sin. God is holy. Other side of the coin, God puts his arm around us and says, look, repent, it's going to be fine. I love you. You're mine. Let me just finish off with an application here. This word for run or flee from immorality or idolatry is a command. But it's in the present tense. That, that, what that means is it's an ongoing thing. Keep running. You're the running man. You're the running woman for the whole life. You're running away from idols. You're running. It's like a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Christian life is a marathon. Here's an application. And I say this with all love and concern. If you're running towards sin right now, Right now, if if your heart is gripped right now, you are running towards sin, you're actively in sin, and life is hard. Just know that God could be disciplining you because he doesn't want you to be disqualified either. You don't want to be left in the wilderness as a corpse, useless to the Lord. 
He's trying to give you a way out right now. On the other hand, if you're running away from sin, you're the running man, you're the running woman, you're running away from sin and life is hard, know that the Lord is with you just like he was with the Israelites. The rock was Christ, Paul said. He's meeting your needs. He's right there with you and me. And these trials, these tests that we're talking about, these peresmos, these tests are there to perfect our faith. He's sanctifying you and purifying you right now. Be encouraged. There's a purpose in it. Let's be running from sin, guys. Brothers and sisters, let's run from sin. This is a serious command from the Lord.